Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about money and monies. A conversation with Ellen Hendrickson, the savvy psychologist, about an MRI study on writers' brains. And finally, a tidbit about the word egregious and how its meaning has changed over time. Michael S. asked, quote, It's acceptable to say, to hold monies for payment and trust. I presume monies is plural, spelled M-O-N-E-Y-S. But I've also seen it spelled M-O-N-I-E-S. Does this mean, then, that the singular would be a money? Unquote. Merriam-Webster and the Oxford English Dictionary list both spellings, M-O-N-E-Y-S and M-O-N-I-E-S. They say they're both acceptable plurals of the word money. Garner's Modern American Usage and the AP Stylebook say that M-O-N-E-Y-S is the better spelling, but that's not what you'll find publications using when you go look. Before the mid-1970s, M-O-N-E-Y-S was the most popular spelling. But since then, monies with an I-E-S has become more popular, at least in books that Google has scanned. Both spellings are still in use, though. The New York Times also has a new tool that shows how words have been used in the paper over time. And it shows a similar pattern. M-O-N-E-Y-S was more popular in the past, but the I-E-S spelling is what they tend to use today. The magazine The Economist also appears to favor the I-E-S spelling. It seems as if dictionaries and style guides are lagging actual usage, and I'm not the only person to notice. The Cambridge Guide to English Usage also notes that, quote, monies, E-Y-S, is given preference over monies, I-E-S, in all dictionaries. Yet general usage in the UK and US is clearly in favor of monies, I-E-S, unquote. The bigger question is, since money is already a collective noun, Both Garner's and the Cambridge Guide to English Usage explain that monies is usually used by legal or finance writers to talk about, quote, individual sums, unquote, or, quote, discrete sums, unquote, of money. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know that most things don't bug me, but I have to confess that monies annoys me a little. I don't think I've ever seen a sentence in which someone uses monies when money wouldn't work. For example, one of the examples in Merriam-Webster reads, quote, most of the project is being paid for by federal monies, unquote. To my ear, it would work just as well and mean the same thing to say the project is being paid for with federal money. Maybe finance writers see a distinction, but I don't see it. But I can tell you monies is not new and it's here to stay. The first example of monies in the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1384 from the Wycliffe Bible. To answer Michael's questions, one, you can spell the plural either way, but I'd go with monies, I-E-S, since that's what most legal and finance writers seem to be using today. And two, even though monies is plural, I can't imagine a sentence in which you'd ever need to talk about a money. But if you can prove me wrong, leave a comment on the monies article at quickanddirtytips.com. And that was your quick and dirty tip. 
Next, I'm delighted to have Ellen Hendrickson back. She is the host of the Savvy Psychologist podcast, and she recently sent me an article about researchers in Germany who studied people's brains while they were actively writing to see what was going on. They had to rig a pretty complex contraption to be able to measure brain activity while people were writing. They looked at both professional writers and novices, and they found differences but the professional writers showed brain activity similar to what researchers see in people who are good at music and sports. Hey, Ellen, so thanks for pointing me to this interesting article. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. So before we get into the findings, they used something called an fMRI scanner. What does that actually measure? Sure. So this is a great question. There are so many fMRI studies in the news these days. But much like gluten or Obamacare, it's not commonly known what fMRI really is. And the term gets thrown around a lot, so this is a perfect opportunity for a quick primer. So fMRI stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. And when an area of the brain is used to think thoughts or perform a task, it requires more oxygen. So blood flow to that area increases to meet the demand. And the fMRI scanner uses a strong magnetic field combined with radio waves to create images of this contrast in blood flow. The oxygen-enhanced blood in the active part of the brain reacts differently to the magnetic field and therefore stands out against the less oxygenated blood in the quieter parts of the brain. And the images allow neuroscientists to pinpoint what parts of the brain are in use during a given task. Plus, there's no exposure to radiation, like in an x-ray or a CT scan, so it's safer. Cool. So what did you think was the most interesting thing about this study? Is it it groundbreaking, or does it build on things researchers already knew? Well, I'd say both. It is groundbreaking, because it's the first time neuroscientists have looked at the brains of experienced writers writing fiction in real time. So two previous studies have had participants make up stories in their heads while in the scanner, But this is the first time we've been able to catch the brain in the act of writing. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, logistically, this was really hard to pull off. So (laughs) you can't have a computer in the same room as the scanner because of the magnetic field. So the researchers asked writers to write longhand. But then you have to lie down in the scanner so they couldn't have the writers sit normally to write. And then finally, you have to be absolutely still in the scanner, just like with a regular camera. If your subject moves, you end up with a blurry picture. So the researchers had this triple whammy of figuring out how to get people to lie down with their heads perfectly still, but still write longhand. So (laughs) through a set of double mirrors and a custom-built writing desk, they jury-rigged a system. And you can find a link to the picture on the Quick and Dirty Tips website. And so the study was also important because the next frontier of creativity research really is identifying neural mechanisms. So in other words, this is the first study to nail down how the semi-mystical qualities of creativity and expertise in professional writers manifest as neurons and blood flow. So it's a bit like pulling back the curtain on the wizard to reveal (laughs) his gears and levers. And it's also important to say that creativity and expertise are really difficult to study. Mm. There's so much that goes into creativity and expertise, originality, intelligence, talent, practice effects, motivation, culture. So while this study is a nice shovel fold towards the excavation of creativity, there's a lot more to uncover before we can get a definite picture of what we're even unearthing. Great. So I'd like to hear more about how the part of the brain, is it pronounced the caudate nucleus, how that is involved in, quote, skills that come with practice, unquote. So, um, so in the study, the part of the brain called the caudate nucleus 
lit up when the experienced writers were writing, but not with the inexperienced writers. So the caudate nucleus is a midbrain structure, which means that it evolved way ahead of the cortex, and it plays a role in a mind-boggling array of functions, including some really fundamental things like sleep and movement. So, but germane to this study, it also plays a role in learning. So as you gain expertise, your brain economizes and automates. In other words, as you get good at something, you stop overthinking. The task becomes automatic, like riding a bike or using a fork. So it makes sense that this area lit up in the scans of expert writers. But in addition, the caudate is also important in language production. So in general, the bigger the caudate, the better one's verbal fluency. <laughs> so indeed, in a case study, there was a trilingual woman with an injured caudate, and she could still understand all three of the languages she knew, but she couldn't sort them out when she tried to speak. So the production was disrupted. And what, of course, is writing, but the production of language. So mm-hmm. it, it makes sense that the caudate lit up with the expert writers here as well. Um, and, but as an aside, by contrast, in the inexperienced writers, the visual areas of the brain lit up as they wrote. And so that suggested that the inexperienced writers were, so to speak, taking notes on a movie that they saw in their mind's eye as they wrote. Um, but to wrap up about the caudate, it also plays a role in some other really interesting things. So, for example, the caudate nucleus is associated with emotion, creativity, entering a flow state, and it lights up when viewing beautiful art, listening to beautiful music, and when looking at the face of your lover. And so I say, if the caudate nucleus were a person, it would probably write really good love poems. <laughs> and we'll never know, but I'm willing to bet Shakespeare had history's biggest caudate <laughs> nucleus. So, um, but as with all studies, there are some caveats here. Since researchers haven't really pinned down exactly how to study creativity with precision, it's important not to be too specific in our conclusions from the study. And I know it drives people crazy when scientists won't definitively say yes or no as an answer, but at least this study points us in a direction, even if we haven't arrived at the destination. That's such an interesting study. And as a former science writer, I just love to hear about this kind of stuff. But is there a useful takeaway message for writers? Any tips? Yes, I have a one word tip, and that is practice. (laughs) So to be a better writer, you have to write. So whether it's fingers on a keyboard or a pen to paper, whether or not your head is in a scanner, practice is how to train your brain. The expert writers in the scanner reported spending, on average, 21 hours per week writing. So, like, as opposed to getting sucked into YouTube. Not that I know anything about that. Oh, me either. And, no, <laughs> clearly no. And training by doing develops your cognitive skills so they become, to quote the study, automatic, implicit, and efficient. So rather than seeing your stories a movie in your head, it will feel more like jazz improvisation with your story as your music. And then finally, as writing becomes more automatic, you'll be able to balance many tasks. So keeping track of characters, constructing sentences, engaging readers' interest. And to quote the researchers again, with practice, your writing will happen in an automatic, unconscious, and intuitive way. And you won't even have to do it lying down. Amazing. Thanks so much. And I'll put a link to the research summary in the transcript of this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com. And that was the Savvy Psychologist from Quick and Dirty Tips. You can subscribe to her podcast at iTunes or Stitcher, just as you can mine. Finally, I'll have a tidbit about the surprisingly shifty word, egregious. A reader who goes by Reef Encounter at Facebook alerted me to the interesting story behind the word egregious. He wrote, quote, Grammar Girl, how can the definition of egregious now be the complete opposite of its original meaning? How does that happen? 
through gradual acceptance of misuse, such as bad or wicked, unquote. I didn't know that egregious had changed its meaning, so I was surprised to find that according to the Oxford English Dictionary, in 1534, egregious meant remarkable in a good sense. But by 1573, people were also using it to mean remarkable in a bad sense, the complete opposite. The OED speculates that the meaning started to switch because people were using egregious, which meant remarkably good, that they were using it ironically. Imagine the 16th century equivalent of a hipster mocking a fellow noble. Indeed, Lord John hath inspired the masses with his egregious plan to collect more taxes. <laughs> Interestingly, some people think that the illogical phrase, I could care less, began the same way with people using it sarcastically or ironically. Sometimes word origins surprise you too, and the origin of egregious also surprised me. It comes from a Latin word whose root means flock, as in a flock of birds. The whole Latin word means standing out from the flock. Originally, egregious meant to stand out from the flock in a good way. But now, thanks to our snarky ancestors, it means to stand out from the flock in a bad way. I'm Mignon Fogarty, standing out from the flock and better known as Grammar Girl. You can find hundreds of my articles at quickanddirtytips.com and subscribe to this very podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. That's all. Thanks for listening. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.